0: Colossians chapter 3, we're picking up our study on spiritual growth and what it doesn't look like, and tonight will be what it does look like. But I have a question for you first as you are turning to Colossians chapter 3. The question is Do you ever get fed up? You know, do you ever get sick and tired of something? For me, and this might come as a shock, so brace yourself. I get sick and tired of clutter. Now, you talk to my parents growing up; they'd be like, "Chris is tired of what? <laughs> Doesn't he live in clutter?" Um, you know, college roommates. You might be surprised that I, it even surprised my wife and I, that when it comes to clutter, I tend to get more fed up with it sooner than she does. Not that I mean she's very cleanly, which is good; it's very good. <laughs> But I get fed up with the clutter. You know, At my old workplace, I worked with furniture, and there's lots of cardboard, and there's lots of styrofoam, and there's lots of trash. And if I ever picked up someone's job where I came in after them to finish, I, got, I could not continue until I cleaned up their mess. I could not do any work until the station was clear. Not, I mean, it doesn't need to be. I mean, germs aren't the problem. It's just the clutter, the mess. I just can't get around the piles of trash. It's the same way with dishes, which is really unfortunate because I do not like to do dishes. But, but you know the best way to clear the clutter of dishes is to do them. <laughs> and so especially while Johanna's been uh, the lifeline for a baby, I have actually, surprisingly to myself, for the last couple of months, every night I make sure the dishes are done. And it's just a relief. You get so tired of dishes, and then you do them, and then the kitchen's clean, the counters are clear, and it feels good. I I don't like doing dishes, but I like the end product. Or even, in this one, if you ever poke into my office, you'll be like, didn't Chris say, Pastor Chris say he doesn't like clutter? What's up with his desk? (laughs) But there's a point where I get, no, I'm done with the clutter, and I have to straighten and organize and dust and put everything back and make it all straight. Ah, and then you feel so much better. I get fed up with the clutter, but you know the solution is usually something pretty simple. You know, just put things away when you're done. Get the duster out every once in a while. Do some dishes. The, the solution is simple. In the, in the Christian life, sometimes, and I'm sure this is the case for you, as Christians, we get fed up with our sin, don't we? There's just a point where it comes and we say, why does this sin cause me so much trouble? Why? And we get fed up with the sin in our own lives. And we start wrestling with how can we deal with it? What's the the key to victory here? How do I overcome my sin? How can I grow spiritually through this? Well, Colossians chapter 3 lays out a blueprint for spiritual growth. And while it might seem simple at first. It is actually quite profound and it is very necessary. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, which we looked at a few weeks ago, provides the foundation for the process of spiritual growth by showing, reminding us of our union with Christ. In his death and resurrection, we are, the power of sin has been broken and our orientation in life is no longer earthly but it's heavenly as we seek the things where Christ is and our lives are hidden with Christ. That's the foundation. But as we keep reading as in our passage today in verses 5 through 17 we'll see that God's blueprint has a two-step process that we'll look at each step tonight. The big picture for the message if you come away with something is that God wants you to follow His blueprint for spiritual growth, because no other blueprint will work. God wants you to follow His blueprint for spiritual growth. We'll look at the uh, two-step process, starting in verse chapter 5. I'm going to read through the entire passage for tonight, verse 5 through 17. You can follow along in the Bible that you have, or there's one in the pew rack in front of you if you need one maybe slide over next to someone and grab, uh, share with them as we read Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. God wants you to follow his blueprint for spiritual growth. And the first step in the process is in verses 5 through 11, The first step is to remove sinful vices. Remove sinful vices. This this first step in the plan requires the removal of that which is old, that which is useless, and that which hinders our growth, and that is our sin. And within this step, there is a a two-fold sub-steps, two sub-steps that we'll see in this. The first is in verse 5 through 7. To mortify your members. Paul says in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Mortify, what does that mean? Well, it means to kill. To put to death. To end the existence of. So, okay, put to death. But what does he mean by our members which are on the earth? Does he mean the living church members? I need to... There's been too many church shootings. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about church members. He's talking about individually, my members, your members. You could think of it as your earthly nature or the the sinful earthly things that are lurking within you, your fallenness. If you can think of it that way, your fallen human nature, your sin nature. And so we need to put these things to death. And what is what does this include? Well, Paul gives us in a list. Now, Paul likes lists, and many of the lists that he gives, like this one, are not exhaustive. He's not listing everything here. He's giving a sample, just some of what could be on the list, and he lists them out. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. If you can even pronounce that word, it basically means evil desire. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice how he identifies covetousness as idolatry. Doesn't that help us to understand what idolatry is in today's day and age? That idolatry is just desiring something, desiring someone, desiring a desire, a goal, as the most important thing in your life and pursuing that above following after Christ. So he gives us this list of things that we need to put to death. But then in verse 6, he gives them a reminder. He says, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. He reminds them, now you know this, God's judgment is coming on sinners, on sin. It's a reminder of God's judgment, his holiness, which promotes his wrath, his judgment upon sin... And then in verse 7, he reminds them again of something important. He says, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. There's two parts in this verse. There's the walked and the lived. To walk is your, your lifestyle. So he's say, reminding them, you used to be like that. Just like every, a part of the world, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, living how you please with no regard to God, you used to be like that. That used to be characterized of your lifestyle. But then he also refers to their life when you lived in them. And this is your state of existence. So it's interesting that he connects the two because your walk or your lifestyle reveals your life or your identity. How you live always flows out of what you believe and who you identify as. You had, so past tense in verse 6 and verse 7, when you used to be like that, you had a sin nature, a sinful nature. You were unredeemed and you lived like you were unredeemed. You lived like an unregenerate sinner because you were. But now, when Christ has come, you have a new makeup. You still struggle with the old nature, but you're new in Christ. You're unified with him. In verse 3 and 4, you are dead with Christ and your life is hid with Christ. That's our new identity. And our new identity should result in a new way of living. Lifestyle reflects your identity, ought to reflect your identity. For example, somebody in our culture or even in, in Paul's culture who would identify as a Homosexual lives like a homosexual, right? Anyone who identifies as a macho man is going to live like a macho man, right? That's what you identify as. That's what you live as. If someone, but in Christ, no matter who you were, you are no longer that. You used to be one of the sons of disobedience. Now you're not. Whoever you were, You are no longer that. A farmer, a soldier, a drunkard, you're not that anymore. You have a new identity. You have a new life. You have a new lifestyle in Christ. results in a new way of living. We need to mortify our members. But then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 and 9. And we get a new term. He says, but now we also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. In verse 8 through 11, the second sub point here is to put off the deeds of the old man. Now the old man is a little different from your members, the earthly sinful things lurking within you. The old man and his deeds. These are the works. This is the lifestyle. We could think of the the earthly members as the identity. And then the old man as the lifestyle. The works that you did as as an unregenerate person. He says in verse 8, put off all these. This is the idea of intentionally, consciously putting them aside... Consciously removing them from your life, not just thinking in church, okay, well, I should probably get rid of that sin, and then not making an effort. It's a concerted effort. And I tell you, there's not much more encouraging to a pastor than to hear somebody in the church say, you know, I identify there's this problem in my life, and I'm working to overcome it. I'm intentionally using scripture, I'm intentionally trying to rid myself of ...of this sinful habit that I have. And that's encouraging, and that's what Paul is talking about. Being intentional in the removal. And again, he gives a list. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, it's a sample list. Anger, which is the the passionate outburst. Wrath, right? i got to find my spot, there we go. Anger, wrath, which is more of the passionate outburst, while anger is the passion... Wrath is the settled state of anger, being mad or being coldly against somebody. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, which doesn't have to be just against God. It's speaking against somebody, speaking ill of a person. Filthy communication, we could think of as crude, joking. And then in verse 9, lie not one to another. Lying. You know, a covenant community like a church is built upon trust. And there can't be trust if there's lying being spread. And so he points that one out specifically, to tell the truth. Because you have put off the old man. Because he is dying, the old man is gone, you need to live A new way. And then in verse 10, he introduces the new man. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Part of spiritual growth, and the term we put to that is sanctification. That's a big word. That simply means spiritual growth. But it means to be set apart. To be sanctified is to be set apart. We're set apart from our sin. And when we're saved, we trust Christ for. Forgiveness of our sins, he sets us apart for a new purpose. We have a new goal. We have a new... We no longer live just for ourselves. We have this new identity I've been talking about. We've been set apart. But then there's this progressive sanctification where we continue to put off the deeds of the flesh. We continue to struggle against sin, and we get better and better. We're never going to be sinless in this life, but we do try to sin... Less. And that is the idea of spiritual growth, of sanctification. But it's the image here. He refers to the image of the one that created him. As Christians, and we grow spiritually, our goal is to look and to act and to sound more like the one who created us. And we saw at the beginning of Colossians chapter 1, that is Jesus Christ. We as Christians, our goal, our spiritual growth in putting these things off and mortifying the members is because we need to look more like Christ. We're trying to become Christ-like in our living. From God's perspective, that's the, the sanctification process. But from our perspective, how do we accomplish that? That's the discipleship. That's church that is coming and, and sitting under preaching. That is going to Sunday school. That's being part of Bible studies and learning from God's word and, and learning from those who teach us about God's word. Learning more about what to not do and what to do. The discipleship process is what the new man is all about. And then we see in verse 11, he makes these distinctions. Paul Paul calls out some identities. He says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew. Now this is a, an ethnic diversity here. Greeks and Jews. Circumcision nor uncircumcision. That's a religious difference. Barbarian or Scythian. That's a cultural difference. Bond or free. That's a social division. But Christ is all and in all. Before Christ... Anybody could identify as one of these things. And we may be those things. But now the identity is no longer those. The identity is Christ. Christ is our identity. Whoever you were, you are new in Christ. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, allows us to break free of the identities that we give ourselves and that others give us. It says that, Christ is all, but it also says Christ is in all. Christ indwells each believer no matter of their earthly status, no matter if they're slaves like some Christians were in the first century, or no matter if they're the owners of the slaves like other Christians were, no matter if they were barbarians, no matter if they were circumcised or uncircumcised, Christ at salvation indwells all of them equally this position that we have in Christ. Christ being all and being in all is what motivates us to put off the deeds of the old man, which is what motivates us to mortify our members. When I was growing up, I grew up in Illinois. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's in the Midwest. It's a long way away from here. It's the land of Lincoln. It's very flat. I grew up in Illinois on a farm and I have many memories of getting dirty, but maybe the, the most sharp images I have of being dirty on the farm is in winter, specifically when it warms up a little bit, and so the snow melts, and it becomes a sloppy, muddy mess. Now, I remember we would bundle up, because it was cold, but it was still sloppy, so we would have our jeans and our shirts and our sweatshirts on, and we'd put on coveralls, and boots, and coats, and a ball cap, and a stocking cap, and small gloves, and big leather working gloves, and we'd go out in this. And I had these tan coveralls. And the thing about tan coveralls is you can see the dirt really easily. And I remember, I was trying really hard to remember a specific instance. But I I don't remember a specific instance, so I don't have a great story. But I remember a specific instance, I remember a general instance, of being covered in mud. And just, you're walking through hog lots and you get stuck and you fall over and the pigs run up against you and you try to carry big heavy things and they're all dirty and everything's muddy. And I just remember my my tan coveralls being muddy, being brown, being black, being gross. And there was one desire I had by the end of the day get me out of these clothes I want to wear something clean and that desire to no one wants to be cold and dirty we want to be clean we want to be fresh I mean some people do, I didn't and so that idea of the mucky outer garments is what we're talking about here only on a spiritual level We have, we're still sinners, we still have the sinful, uckiness, but it no longer has power over us. We're no longer bound to wear that. In fact, Paul says, seeing that you have put off the old man, you have taken off the dirty clothes, you no longer need to walk around like you're a dirty, rotten sinner, even though you are, because you've been given new robes, you've been given new clothes, you're no longer an unregenerate person. We need to be removing these sinful vices. And it takes, first of all, an intellectual effort to consider what sins beset me. Now, you're not unique. Whatever besets you besets someone else, but with all of us to different degrees, what are the things in your life Consider those things in your life, your hobbies, your actions, your spending habits, the things you say. Are those things Christ-like? Do they show that you have a new identity in Christ? Or do they show that you're still living with the dirty clothes on? That you're trying to go back and put those on? We need to intentionally examine our lives and then remove those things that Christ wouldn't have in his life as we seek to be more like Christ. Our first step in God's blueprint is to remove those sinful vices. But you can't just remove it and leave it off and not do anything else and expect that to really help. And so the second process, the second step in the process, helps us with that. And that is to put on spiritual virtues. We remove sinful vices and then put on spiritual virtues. We see this in verses 12 through 17. Then, By putting on spiritual virtues, we fill the void of what is left from the sinful vices. We must put on an identity. We must put on a lifestyle that replaces the old and the sinful ones. Again, there's a, 2 subpoints to this one. The first sub-point is spiritual virtues that are outward in relation to others. We th- see these in verses 12, 13, and 14. Paul says, put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved. Before he even begins to make lists again and say what you need to be, how you need to be living as a believer, he reminds them of their position in Christ, of what they have from God. He says, first of all, you are elect. God chose you. Did you ever think of that, of all? No one deserves to be chosen by God. We all deserve an eternity in hell. And yet, of all the masses running towards that cliff, God chose you. He picked you up. He set you apart. Granted you salvation. You've been chosen by God. You're elect. But he also says you are holy. And that's the set apart. Like the sanctification we talked about. Holy is another word that means to set apart. You've, you're apart from sin. You're no longer bound to it. And then you are also beloved. God doesn't just pick you up and set you apart and say, There, now be, be holy, you sinner that I chose. He loves you. He, in fact, loves all people. And he chose you, he set you apart, and he loves you. And with that foundation, with that motivation... Paul moves into how you should start living. What things you should put on in your life. And he starts with another list. He says, Put on bowels of mercy, or put on tender mercies towards other people. Tenderness, as opposed to being harsh. Kindness, doing good for people. Humbleness of mind. Oh, how many problems would be solved if we would have a humble mind. Instead of putting me first, putting others first. Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. Forbearing is the idea of bearing someone else's burdens. You know, sometimes people or our relationships with people can be a burden, right? That's where the long-suffering comes in. We're patient as we bear their burdens, as we share loads together. And forgiving one another. Ah, forgiveness. Forgiving one another. And the, the basis for forgiveness is God, Christ's forgiveness of you. If someone, and this hasn't happened, but if someone were to come to me and say, I have a problem with so-and-so because they wronged me. Well, the first thought is, can you forgive that person? How about, did God forgive that person? Does God forgive that person of their sin? Yes. Yes. So do you think maybe you, and God's had to forgive you of your sin, do you think maybe you could extend the same forgiveness to them that God has shown you, that Christ has shown you? Forgiveness with the example of Christ. And then verse 14, it pinnacles here with love. It says, and above all these things put on charity, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. Love or The idea of perfectness there is maturity. The bond of maturity. Love is the ultimate bond between believers. We're talking about selfless love here. Sacrificial love. Love that puts the other person first. This sort of love is the belt, if you will, that holds the rest of the clothes together. These other things we're supposed to put on. The Christian's garments, if you will. Love holds it all together. Love is what holds it on And we must always understand that love is not a feeling that drives our emotions. Oftentimes we think that. I'm in love because I feel something. Love is not a feeling that drives our emotions. Love is an action that is submitted to our wills. We choose to love. We don't feel to love. We choose to love. Well, that's in relation to others. The clothes we put on, the Christian virtues we put on... ...in relation to others. In verse 15, 16, and 17... ...the focus shifts a little bit... ...as we see... ...our inward state... ...and how what things we should put on on the inside. The first he says... ...peace... ...in verse 15... ...and let the peace of God rule in your hearts... ...to which also you are called in one body... ...and be thankful. Let the peace of God... ...be your umpire. Are you guys familiar with an umpire... Whether it's a tennis match or a baseball or... I know there's other sports that have umpires. You know, an umpire. What's he do? He calls the shots, right? He says, well, that was in or this is out or he was safe. The umpire calls the shots. We should let the peace of God call the shots. When we have a body of believers, do you realize that there's not always going to be agreement? (laughs) Wow, you're shocked. Mouths gaping open. No one expected that. You know it. There's disagreement. We should never let pride or selfish desire rule our hearts. We need to let the peace of God rule our hearts. Let the peace of God determine how we respond. I'm not saying that that always means that we, well, I'm going to not worry about what I want because I'm trying to keep the peace. You can have opinions and we can discuss it. But how you discuss it, what happens when what you really want loses or doesn't pass, or what happen, how you respond when your will does get accomplished. All of these things should be ruled by maintaining the peace of God, be ruled by the peace of God, not by selfish desire. So that's the peace of Christ. In verse 16, we see the message of Christ. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This word to dwell is really to be at home with. Let the word of Christ be comfortable in your life. You know, the word of Christ... The word of God here can be kind of prickly at times. When we're disobeying and we read it, it it pierces our hearts. And we might want to just stop reading it for a while because it hurts too much. I don't like to change. But Paul says if it gets comfortable, it needs to be comfortable in your life. So you have to be reading it. You have to be ingesting it. You can think of even a sponge. If you have a dry sponge and you squeeze it, what comes out? Nothing, right? Well, what if you take the same sponge and you sprinkle some water on it? And then you squeeze it. You might get a drop, maybe. To get water out of the sponge, it has to be submerged in a bowl of water. It has to be have the water soaked ...permeated through it. And then when you pick it up and squeeze it, out comes the water... ...because it's permeated. In our lives, we need to be like that sponge... ...with the Word of God permeating our life. And when the hard times come and it's squeezed... ...instead of coming out wrath or anger or blasphemy... ...instead of coming out with selfishness or pride... ...the Word of God comes out. And these virtues... Come out because the Word of God has taken up residency in our lives. And it, it gets worked out in different ways. When the Word of Christ dwells in us with all a richly, there's a couple words here that he describes what that looks like. There's teaching, there's admonishing, and there's singing. These are the results of having the Word of Christ dwell in our hearts, but also. Interestingly enough, that's how one of the ways that we get the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Because of the teaching of the word. Because of listening to the admonishing. When someone, usually God, smacks us upside the head, proverbially speaking, and says, you need to change. And singing, that gives an interesting perspective on what our song should be, right? Right? We don't sing songs just to get hyped up so we can learn from the sermon. We sing songs that instruct us. We sing songs that are admonishing to us. Songs that shape our hearts. And they do, probably in some way, help prepare us for the message. We do select the songs, Pastor Dave and I, to support the message. But it's not a separate thing. It works together in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. And then finally, we see the name of Christ. It says, when whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now, this is a good life verse, isn't it? There he is. That's what I ought to be doing. What this verse means is that our understanding of who Christ is, our identity in him, His authority over us and our understanding of his will should govern every thought, every motive, every word, every deed. Our life, from beginning to end, from top to bottom, from front to back, should be motivated by Christ. Do all that we do in the name of the Lord, being a witness to him. And we are thankful for it. Thankfulness is one of the great markers of a believer. Now, other people can be thankful too, but a believer ought always to be giving thanks to what, for what God has given to them. We need to put on spiritual virtues. You remember when I was talking just a little bit ago about being in Illinois in the winter on the farm and having dirty coveralls? The reason I remember that. Is because I remember the I remember? I re, yeah. the reason I remember that the most is because I remember coming in. We take our boots off outside, but then we go in and we go to the basement and we take off the the dirty hat and the dirty gloves and the dirty coat and the dirty coveralls and you take a shower and then you put on clean clothes. The freshness, ah, that's what I really remember was the relief and the almost the joy, just the finally I'm clean and I'm warm and I feel good. That is the putting on. We don't just take off the dirty and then walk around. We take off the dirty, we clean up, and we put on the fresh, we put on the new, we put on the the spiritual virtues in the spiritual world. So to do this, We have to start by letting the word of Christ be at home in our hearts. And then, after that, and this is probably all very very new and profound to you, isn't it? I said at the beginning, it's simple. God's blueprint is not something that you've probably never heard before. It's simple, but we ought to be doing it. And it's always a good reminder to let the word of God permeate our lives by reading it. And it's going to take more than probably just reading it once for five minutes in the morning, and then forgetting about it until the next morning when we read it for five minutes. It's reading it, and then it's thinking through it, considering, praying through it. Throughout the day, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to think and work at the same time. Maybe it's because I'm a man. I don't know. But when you have time to be thinking about it, what does God want for me? How does this passage change? the way I'm living right now the word of Christ is where it begins and remember that Christ is inseparable from Christian growth it is our union with him that can give us the motivation to put on these spiritual virtues god's blueprint for spiritual growth is interesting you know it's not what you might think it would be it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a, a compilation of ceremonies we must perform. It's not a bunch of legal taboos. There's no threatening code of rules with penalties enforced with varying degrees of fulfilling the code. Paul simply reminds the believers what God has done for us in Christ. We each then must only ask, what is appropriate For someone who is identified with Christ, how should that person live? And God has given us all the answers to that question in his word. And it's our responsibility to find them. It's our responsibility to do with them. Are you Christian tonight? Are you fed up with your sin? Are you tired of fighting these battles? Good. (laughs) That's a good thing. It's a sign of a healthy Christian. If you're a Christian tonight, and you are done fighting. And you say, I'm not fed up with it because I've just given up. That's where we start being concerned. We ought always to fight. And I would encourage you that there is hope. Christ is the one who fights for us. It's our union with him that gives us strength in spiritual battles. We can't do it on our own. Maybe that's why you've given up. You've fought too long by yourself, believing that you are all you need. Well, Christ is what you need. Christ is the one who fights for us. Christ gives us the victory. And it's his blueprint that we must follow. I would encourage you and I would challenge you with that. Are you following God's blueprint for spiritual growth? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word and the challenge it is to us. We pray that you would... Help us, we pray that you would grow us, and we pray that your mercy would be sufficient, your grace would be sufficient for us. Pray that as we live this life, you would help us to learn to love you more and to serve you better, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.